out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we are, Jim. Well, on some days. Anyway, hello, this is David Esau. This is the C86 show. This is a little bit of a special one because this time it's going to be a photographer um, who I spoke to very recently, Binker Peterson, uh, to find out more about that creative process. And if you are thinking, hmm, that's a name I vaguely recognise, and you might do, um, she brought out an amazing book several years ago, probably decades now, called No System, um, plus various other publications that we will be talking about in this in-depth interview. And after a bit of chat and how to, and getting to know each other, I began by asking that important and interesting question. Well, slightly. Um, yes, about how it all began. And this was her reply. Binka, take it away. I guess it's a mixture of, of whatever everyone else thinks it is, but also, you know, my magic ingredients are always sort of fun and um, and respect to those involved, really. Yes. So, uh, so when did you start taking, you know, photographs? When did you start sort of being drawn to the, the world of photography? And I just wondered if there was something or pi- some photographer or picture that you saw when you were young that you were kind of like, kind of fascinated well, by. Yeah, I mean, my, my dad, you know how parents sort of, um, you know, when you're really young, it's quite nice having your photo taken, and then when you reach teenage, they drive you absolutely mad. Well, my dad did that, but with a sort of giant camera. <laughs> and um, I was kind of interested in it, actually. This this He, he used a, a big SLR, and then he would convert our like downstairs toilet into a dark room by sort of sticking loads of cardboard up on the windows and stuff. So I kind of ended up in there. I was really bored because I grew up in the middle of nowhere in the countryside. And I was the youngest of six altogether, and, and most of them had left home. And so I kind of needed stuff to do. So I, I did a bit of dark room work um, when I was in my teens. Um, but I always preferred colour photography, and that, that was a lot more complicated. My dad didn't, you know, do his own colour photography. So I kind of soon gave up on the whole dark room thing. Yes. Um, but, but yeah, I was definitely photographing in my team. Well, actually, I found uh, when I was doing the show um, at Saatchi this year, I was going through all my archive, um, which is basically just boxes of photos, archives of other glorious names for <laughs> a pile of photos. But it will become one soon. Um, so I was, I was sort of delving into the kind of depths of the archive and found a bag of photographs. Um, one of which was in a packet that was kind of an envelope that I obviously made with like staples around it and it just said on the front my first photos and first was spelt with an e so it was uh, obviously like pre-spelling age and and they were that was a so I found my first pack of photos so I must have been what six or seven then um so I've been doing taking photos since I was really young but got really interested in it I suppose when I was at school and just recording just my friends and you know yes. taking photos of myself as you do you're slightly self-obsessed when you're teenage I think that's part of the photography you know, and photography and poetry is often quite big isn't it with the world of fanzines <laughs> and stuff like that yeah I mean I was so unexposed to anything to be honest I was literally stuck in a village with nothing to do 
pre-internet and um, older sisters and brothers that are kind of left home, parents that were kind of busy. Um, and I, I really didn't, I have to be honest, I really didn't have any influences. Yes. And then when I took photos, my photography always became just recording what I was doing. Um, I don't know why I had an obsession for doing that, but I wrote diaries and I took photographs. And, and they were pretty like average sort of subjects, just my friends at school, my family, parties I went to. Um, yes. And I never really, I didn't study photography. I, I didn't even really, you know, you'd have to have photography books to study other photographers in those days. And we didn't. My dad wasn't really sort of interested in, you know, the, the art of photography, as it were. Yes. Um, so... When I, you know, and then I left home pretty young at like 17 and moved into a squat in London. So, and I kind of like ditched education, which I'd always been slightly at odds with anyway. Um, and said I was going to art college in London, didn't, went to live in a squat. And then I, but I carried on taking photographs. So I've got a few then, and that was sort of 88, 89. Yes. And also just because I'm sort of obsessed, I suppose, with that indie world of the 80s and sort of I've yeah. done a lot of interviews with bands during that time. And there was a lot of and a lot of people, especially from Australia, New Zealand and elsewhere in the country and Canada were coming to when they came to London. They, they often mentioned squatting in London was very good and slightly easy mm -hmm. at that time because there was just so many. So did you. Because actually, interesting when you said go back coming from the countryside and the village, because that's actually my background as well. That there was no kind of community, there was no particularly kind of many people to even sort of my age to hang out with. So it was quite an interesting and slightly lonely time. So I kind of thought, yes, because more mostly people come from a city and then they just have that confidence. Whereas I felt very underconfident. And going into London, I always felt quite intimidated. But you obviously found your way there. Well, I, 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 I can't relate more to what you're saying. That's exactly how I felt. I felt lonely, though I didn't really understand that that's the feeling because it was just, uh, you know, your life. But I felt a, definitely a lack of community. Again, I didn't realise until I found one. But, um, and yeah, there were just a few small handful of people my age in the village and I didn't particularly, you know, spark off any of them. So... When I basically, well, I, I sort of started drinking quite young. But again, you know, you live in a village, you have to get home. I wasn't like, you know, so I'd go out in the evening into the pub. We used to get into pubs at the age of about 14, 15 back then. <laughs> so, you know, but it was always sort of cut short by having to get home somehow into the middle of nowhere, you know. Um, so, but I started drinking and sort of experimenting with drugs quite young and I met um uh my my first boyfriend really um who was a kind of like he was a he was I guess a kind of mixture between a dread and a punk so he had like dreadlocks but he was like shaved at the side so you know, Class he was a classic looking <laughs> yeah the whole thing you know with like subhuman t-shirts and things like that and I just thought this guy was just amazing and um would have followed him to the ends of the earth but I, in fact I just followed him up to London uh, left school and um I didn't really know about the squatting scene then I just we just literally he kind of had this thing called the squatting handbook and he knew about squatting a bit and we literally just kind of broke into an empty house on our own and kind of read what you had to do you had to put a notice up and say you were there and keep you know hidden for a couple of days and 
so we started like that and then I very slowly kind of over the next few months became aware of this huge network of these squats and huge squats and squats that were like art sort of based or squats that were full of hippies or punk anarchist squats or you know everything it was everything in London and it was like you say amazing and easy so I had managed to leave home at 17 and house myself right in the middle of the city which is like impossible mm. for the equivalent person of my age nowadays yes yeah. and also that that was a sort of it was interesting because of uh, sort of it, mentioned about the in my obsession with the indie pop world of the 80s there was a change in kind of with a lot of those bands struggled because suddenly the drugs changed to ecstasy so the dance scene started to appear didn't it which kind of knocked out all those kind of guitar in um not guitar bands but you know the sound of the smiths basically went to the to the sound of the stone roses and um yes the soup dragons and primal scream and also people like a guy called gerald so the dance the dance scene started to kick off and then also because in the 70s especially in the early 80s there was this kind of traveling convoy community that you know used to have buses as well so there was a whole sort of subculture that was going on which obviously you started to document didn't you yeah so I mean you're saying that about the soup dragons and people like that so they is my first encounter of those kind of bands was at like Canterbury University so they'd come and play and I was probably still at school then so 16 17 years old um, and you get to go and see these bands, like, really close up, and hardly anyone would turn up. So you'd see these amazing bands probably before they'd become well-known. Um, but that was a real, you know, um, gateway into those kind of um, British indie bands. And then when I went to London, obviously the venues get bigger, so you get bigger names. You've got Sonic Youth, you know, uh, uh, Big Black, um is it Big Black? It yeah, called? well, there's Sonic Youth, yeah. the Butthole Surfers, but, the Pixies, yeah, and, and, the, and also American the grunge scene from Seattle with yeah. um, Nirvana. And I was kind of really into all that, that, like you say, but I also, sort of going alongside that and really integral to the sort of squatting scene was the whole kind of dub reggae scene. That was like, you know, if you were that stoned, like we were getting, you know, a dub <laughs> reggae gig was pretty wonderful yes you know you go in the back the whole place was full of smoke you know from these giant joints everyone was smoking and then you just had this incredible bass line and sub bass that you could feel when you walked in the room and you know I could never get in more than about a couple of meters because I couldn't get anywhere near the speakers because it was so physical the feeling like your lungs would be like (laughs) yes but that was amazing you know so that you know, yeah, the squatting scene was really interlaced with all those music scenes, definitely. Yes. Uh, so when did you, I mean, at that stage, and it was pretty impressive, oh, well, you had a yeah. c- camera that didn't get stolen. Did you, I mean, did you did you ever have that moment where you thought, oh, I want to document this, or was it kind of by chance? No, you know, it's really weird. Either it's a lack of memory or it just wasn't a moment, but I can never remember that. And I don't have a lot of photos from then, but I have diaries, so in some way I was always documenting. So I think I kind of thought it just depended. I guess you didn't really want to turn up at a dub reggae gig and start taking photos in those days, you know, because people would just think it was weird and they wouldn't want you to. Yes. Um, but 
like you were saying, then what, what happened with the music scene when ecstasy came along? I mean, literally, like, that's what happened to me. I, I got invited to a rave. I'd been too scared to go to raves because I'd heard about them and I just thought they were a bit freaky. <laughs> but I went and someone gave me, like, half an E and I just didn't move off, like, two metres square of dance floor the whole night and just loved it. And then I went to the girls' toilets and it was like a revelation. It was like the most wonderful thing ever. All these women just standing around chatting absolute rubbish to each other and being so friendly and lovely. And, you know, that, you know, it, it blew any kind of sort of... Um, sort of more sophisticated music sense out of me <laughs> and I just started going to raves and taking ease and just having a brilliant time and I think in those early days I didn't have my camera with me much or it would just be like in the car in the car park or something like that and so I've got pictures of kind of outside in the car parks and you know sitting with 25 of you trying to get in the back of a four called metro I mean a mini metro or something like that but you know and often uh, the photos I had from that time were in the mornings, you know, I was thinking, oh, yeah, I've got my camera, I'll go and take some pictures. But the photography really kicked off when I kind of, um, well, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead here, but in the, I think it's 1994, the, the rays had got so big in and around London and, and it culminated in a giant rave festival called castle morton oh yes that was yeah that was yeah. probably about 92 93 wasn't it yeah the famous one and that, uh, you know as a result of that the criminal justice bill um parts of the criminal justice bill kind of tried to outlaw even like driving towards a rave um <laughs> let, let alone being there you know um if you literally get arrested for heading towards one so we kind of did cat and mouse with the police for another couple of years but it just got ridiculous you'd end up going to like five different you know meeting points for different raids and you'd just be the police would just be on you all the time and they'd get shut down and the odds of actually getting to one or you get to one at about six in the morning and finally you'd be able to dance and you know and I got kind of sick of it yeah so I don't, but I heard about you know spiral tribe and, and these people that I'd met quite you know I hadn't wasn't hanging out with yet but I'd met and come across and um I'd heard about them going out to Europe and the fact that you could do these raids out in Europe and there was much more room and the police really just didn't know what to do about it and they were you know successful um you could you could dance all night and so I, I kind of you know I think I had a job shelf stacking in the supermarket and then I had a couple of other sort of bad jobs but just to save up the money and I um so you don't hit you and went abroad you got yeah. you did the whole travellers. You got the you got yeah, the, so, the excellent. This is good. Yeah. So basically, like again, I've always got a very long answer, I'm afraid. But going back to what you're saying, the real like documenting of of uh, the scene started for me when I went abroad because I was living it, and way beyond the parties, the whole life was just amazing to me, and I. I know that I wasn't documenting it for artistic reasons or for anyone else because I didn't even keep the negatives to a lot of those early rolls of film. The important thing for me was having the, the small prints, like you get at Boots or wherever. Yes. Um, so, I mean, I literally, you know, don't don't have the negs for the first box or in the archive. Um, 
So I know that I wasn't thinking about photographing for any other point in time or anyone else. It was just for me and my friends to kind of have these like this record of our lives. And but I did know that it was really extraordinary what I was doing. Um, and then I guess I think what what made me realise was that I met a photographer in London called Corin Day, and I used to hang out in her flat with her and she was the one that kind of said these are great you should keep taking them she'd give me rolls of film and um she even gave me a camera or two and so the next 10 years so from the early well no maybe six seven years from sort of 1993 94 to um 2000 I was basically living on the road in Europe yes Um, so when do because that's quite an amazing meeting isn't it because she's is she the one who's famous for the Kate Moss picture, isn't she? Yeah, yeah. And that was kind of one of those kind of iconic photographs that appeared. And then, but she's quite a name. Mm. So sort of going from Squatland, mm. travelling, taking drugs, to meeting such an established photographer does seem quite unbelievable, in a good way. Well, like, there, was, there was always this, like, kind of duality in my life. And actually, if I think about it, I did meet her a lot earlier than that. Um my second book, Future Fantasy, kind of covers that. So no system kind of goes from about 1994 and it's the whole techno traveller kind of um, scene and putting on these giant illegal rays. But Future Fantasy covers a bit before. So it's like pictures starting from when I was still at school. And the last picture in the book is me getting my first fan. But in between that is this, is the life I led in those few years. But the, the duality of that was that I left home to go to art college and didn't ever make it, but I did. So I was offered um, a contract with a modelling agency, which was hilarious because I was like living in these squats and going raving and then t- trying to turn up at castings and like jobs, <laughs> thinking I was like really neat and tidy, having left the squat looking quite smart and realising I was like covered in dog hair and, you know, you know, no makeup and but it was there was that kind of grunge thing going on then yes so um I was a very unsuccessful model but <laughs> people used to book me for jobs because they thought I'd be a laugh so you go into these castings and they're all these very prim beautiful girls and they would get like 95 percent of the jobs and then you go into the odd casting and they'd just be like a cool photographer that you know I don't know, had his fill of beautiful, perfect girls and thought I would be much more fun. <laughs> so, um, and one of one time, it was the guy called Mark Stasi who was actually making a little film for MTV. Um, they used to do films then. And I went along to the, the video shoot he was doing and the woman that was styling it was his girlfriend at the time. And that was Corin. Corin, so, yes, my God, yeah. that is an extraordinary sort of, um, yeah. yes, well, you know, sort of chance meeting, yeah. really, wasn't it? So as you yeah. were sort of trucking through the decade, and yeah. you were on the road, but then did you sort of keep coming back to London to uh, sort of regroup, so to speak? Because it's kind of it would be hard to sort of keep living on the road, isn't it? Keeping it together. Yeah, I didn't keep it together. It's a short answer. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, Strangely, I kind of, I guess I started using the camera as a way of keeping it together, maybe. So I would like quite often at these big parties and festivals and stuff, I would kind of 
go back to my truck and go, oh, I'm going to take some pictures now. And it was almost like I, I had a mission, I had something to do. Um, and I would take those back to England, but I'd also develop them abroad. I'd just go into local kind of photo shops, photo, you know, development shops, shops and, and get these little packets back. And it wasn't till about 1996, 97. Yeah, so I kept going back. So if I got, say, a modelling job through my agency, I'd go back and do it. Or I'd go back and work for a couple of months if I needed some cash or... Um, I mean, we used to sell mixtapes and T-shirts and stuff at the raves, but, you know, there was always a bit more money needed. So, I'd, I, I, you know, I've been self-employed since I was 16, could be then. Yeah. And so I would come back and work and then go back out. But And I, you know, had the odd, odd boyfriend that I I'd, I'd, would go and live with for a couple of months, maybe in London or whatever. But I always either had a caravan outside or a camper van and would always end up back on the road. Yeah. So So then um, mm. when did you get your sort of the big publishing moment? Yeah. So the big publishing moment was, again, um, basically, Corinne was saying these pictures are brilliant. I love them. And I said, well, I came back one day and when I was living on the road, you didn't have the Internet then. So you couldn't share pictures. So every time I turned up at a big festival rave people would come and like look at the pictures from all the different sound systems that I'd photographed over the years and and people wanted copies of them and you'd have to go to a shop and get the neg and copy it and you know then find the person again you know somewhere else living on the road so I was like right I'm going to go back to England I'm going to do 10 photo albums I'm going to copy each of these like the best pictures 10 times and I'm going to give one photo album to each of the traveling sound systems I knew that spiral tribe Alien Pulse and you know Lego and lots of these other systems and so I went back to Corey and I said look I need to make 10 copies of this album how, how can I do it and she went well publish it and I was like no can I swear yeah god yes <laughs> no fucking way I literally I'll, I'll get lynched you know the, the only reason these people let me take their photos because I live with them you know it wasn't like it is now you know you, people had camera their film ripped out of their cameras cameras smashed all sorts of things you know it, it was an underground scene it was like fairly watertight you know the only way you could get caught being dodgy was like through your passport your number plate or a photo of your face like I was like, no, wait, it's not. I'm ne- I'll never do that. I kind of said, and she, she kept sort of saying, you know, it's really, you know, then you could give like a hundred or a thousand copies of this album to all those people, you know. And she really kept at it. And she'd go and see my friend Michael Mack. You know, he's he's working with Steidel, um, and you know, he's doing my book. I'm sure he'd like to see it. So I went to meet this chap, and he basically said, look. If you do it, you can have total freedom over the edit. You know, you, you can have last choice of everything that goes in it. And, you know, we'll get you a load of free copies for your friends. So I said, OK, well, I've got to I'll, I'll take a dummy copy of the book and I'll go back on the road for a year. And find people without physically finding them. So I got back in my truck and I spent a year trying to find as many of the people in the book as possible and asking them if they minded. And they like nearly all said the same thing. So they all went, no fucking way, no, no. Well, you know, uh, if you give me a copy, I suppose it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, 
so yeah, it was published in 1999. Yes, which um, was kind of quite an amazing. And did that kind of change everything for you? That publication? No, it kind of changed nothing really. Like it, it's kind of extraordinary because now I understand what that was to get a book, you know, fully sponsored and published by Michael Mack and Gerhard Steigl. You know, is incredible and. The other interesting thing about it was that in my head it had to be really, really cheap because it was like a free party scene mm. and I didn't want to appear to be making any profit or any money out of it, you know, because that just wasn't what you did. You know, you, you know everyone gave for the, for the good of all, you know, for the party, for the techno, for the rave, you know, the free party. So um, I made it like $9.99, which... Um, was a bit of a joke because I knew that even like even I, I was trying to think of the poorest person the most desperate person I thought even a junkie can get a tenner together <laughs> because <laughs> good, you know heroin yes. come in these these 10 bags they were called it was 10 pounds so I was like right so it's got to be 9.99 so not no one no one can have a go at me yes um, and then like Steidl kind of said oh yeah for that price we can do this little book and it'll be about 90 pages and then by the end of all the meetings I had with him, it was like huge and like 280 mm. pages or something like that, or 160, or I can't remember how many pages it is, but a lot. And did um, you, and did doing that book, did that slightly, um, <clears throat> did that slightly draw a line under that, that sort of scene? No, no, I carried on living in a truck and being on the road until I was pregnant actually so my son Archie was was conceived on a traveler site in, in Deptford in London actually well I was back in England by then but mm. no it didn't it didn't do much but what I did do is I, I was some friends of mine that were really trying to like probably trying to like create an art art kind of career for me out of out of this like amazing moment um, but I wasn't ready yet and, and I didn't want to go and see galleries. I felt like insecure and I felt it was all a bit weird and not really what I was into. So I kind of rented this big space and did this exhibition like my friends helped me put up all these photos. And um, so I did do an exhibition. Um, but what that did was it was very interesting. It cost me five grand to do it, which I'd borrowed. And I sold exactly five grand amount of photographs at this exhibition which sounds like a load of money but obviously there was no profit in that yes but what what it did which freaked me out was I started getting this little voice in my head going hmm so a lot of people like that one and wanted to buy that one but no one wanted to buy those ones so I think I should start taking more photos like those ones that one you know and then I thought oh my god you know, I've only done one exhibition and my head's already messing with itself about money. So I was like, I just made a conscious decision then to not make money that way. Yeah. So I carried on, carried on working freelance. And so I, you know, and still to this day, I always have a job with which I make money. And that leaves me free to, you know, make money or not make money with my artwork, which I think 
was probably the best decision I, I, I ever made. Yeah. yeah. And since then, I mean, you've done a lot of projects and you've obviously, yeah. like all of us, have to deal with kind of other aspects of life, like your parents going, getting older and dealing with them and their sort of journey yeah. in life and then your own journey. So, And then things like homes and houses and, and you've, you've obviously got a child. Yeah. So, they, I mean, it's hard sometimes to keep doing what you love or just want to do when you have other responsibilities. So did that also sort of kind of create not tension but um yeah needing to yeah. move in a different direction I think again at the time I didn't really do this consciously but looking back so this, if you're talking about there was one point there was a point basically when my son was born and and I had decided in in my head I didn't want to bring him up on a traveler's site I thought if he wants to go and live like that that can be his decision when he's an adult like it was my decision when I was an adult. But I I kind of wanted to go on his trip, as it were. So I thought, um, I want a blank canvas. I, I moved out of London. I moved to the seaside. Um, and I thought, well, I'll just see where this little human being takes me. And um, I realised what I did there. You know, if you think about the fact that from the age of about 17 to about 30, I had had a kind of wild life and a really interesting life and I had had more fun than you can possibly like fit normally into <laughs> a life and so I was actually really ready just to settle down and just to sit still and just to think and just to not have endless kind of distraction so what happened was this sort of great outward adventure and outward journey turned into an inward one, I think. Yes. And and to be honest, you know, um, I'm 46 now, so the last 15 years, you could say, was, was this inward journey, and it's been just as interesting, I have to say. Um, yes. Finding out about oneself, um, understanding one's reactions to the world and reactions to people around you. It's just a fascinating thing. Um, and 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 the freedom and the the, the humour and the joy that I kind of learn over those formative years, just I apply to everything now. So, you know, I, I, I think I feel a lot freer than a lot of people. Yes. Uh, and a lot less, I'm not, I don't, I don't have as much fear as I see in a lot of people around me. Mm. Which is a good thing. Which is So look, you've got an amazing body of work, haven't you? I mean, are you, <laughs> and <laughs> I have to say, it's kind of hard to sometimes get hold of your stuff, isn't it? Do you, I mean, are you sort <laughs> of looking to sort of um, kind of, I don't know, archive or have it more accessible? Because some of it is just, you know, like the No System book and various other bits of all sort of, like they've sold out and I just wondered if you you know yeah. I know with a lot of photographers or artists they get to a point where they want to get it archived and a little bit more accessible so I just wondered what your kind of next project is going to be because last year you did quite a gig didn't you at the um, Saatchi yeah. and Saatchi gallery which was quite extraordinary yeah. so I just wondered what the new year and new decade was was sort of shaping up to be. Well, that's another really eloquent question. <laughs> um, that is, I guess, the downfall of being fairly non-commercial is that, you know, 
how do people go out and get your stuff? Um, so I've responded to that in smaller ways and bigger ways. So um, most of them ended up being extremely expensive. Um, and um, I am in the process of negotiating a reprint of that. So that is a great way to get that body of work back out there again, um, hopefully in an affordable reprint of my system. But in the meantime, I put I got a friend of mine to photograph the whole book. So the whole book is up on my website. So that was kind of a gift to people was, you know, at least if you can't get hold of the book, you can see every single picture. Um, again, Future Fantasy, I've reprinted now. So that's available. Um, I have another book called Juice in a Quarter that was based around a, a quite different subject, but a very similar sense, which was a road trip across Texas with Corin Day, actually, um, in, in the 90s. Um, but as far as sort of access, yeah, so Starchy, the Starchy Gallery um, show was a, a show called Sweet Harmony, and it was um, all about rave. And I had a room and I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to, to kind of show the archive in a sense. So I don't know um, if you've seen any pictures of the show or if you went, but I just basically did a kind of timeline from being at school to the present day. And it, there were probably about 700 photographs up on the wall. So it was a kind of like a, I guess, a very generous way of, trying to you know let people into the archive yes um my dream would be to have the archive have somewhere and accessible to people and it will happen so you know that's one for the future the martin parr foundation um martin parr bought the maquettes of no system last year which was great um so that that's available to see in the martin parr foundation and um, I'm going to do a show there as well in the next year or so. Um, the Tate actually for one year had had the whole of No System up on the, on the wall as well, which was great. Um, but the future holds. It's interesting you mentioned the archive a couple of times because I'm about to do a, a show up at um, the Northern Gallery for Contemporary Art in Sunderland, um, and. Part of that is a performance piece I'm doing called Live Archive, um, where I will be going through my archive in situ in the gallery and people can come and talk to me and talk about archiving and memories and how we kind of relate to sort of, yes. you know, in one way, the first part of your life by looking back, which is kind of what I'm doing. Um, and, they'll, you know, I'll be blowing up lots and lots of pictures from the archive to be seen so um yeah that's what i'm doing yes yeah. and just kind of one last <laughs> and one last question i mean you know because it's interesting you mentioned martin Parr. i just remember going to see him giving a talk when he was in norwich and i sort of looked mm -hmm. at you know was always fascinated with his body of work and mm -hmm. and realized that sometimes you you have that kind of uh, and with a lot of people have a zeitgeist moment and it's like what how mm -hmm. do you keep that going you know like and i just wondered yourself with photography mm -hmm. how do you yeah. you know after you know do your I was going to say your David Bowie low album but you know it's that kind of um mm -hmm. when you mm -hmm. yes to keep it because obviously you had that kind of 
moment with the traveling scene and the sound systems mm -hmm. then where do you take it when that scene scene has kind of disappeared a bit I sort of think yeah. and then go to the next one as you get older yourself yeah I think it's really important to understand kind of understand what you're doing as an artist so um, if I was just a photographer I guess I would find an uh, you know another interesting scene but because I wasn't documenting it just for the sense of documenting it I think what I had to do was kind of work out what the essence of, of all my work was and then you know I'm, I'm moving much more into installation pieces now and performance pieces so it's almost like it's a kind of a second wave um, of work and that's really that's a, that's a great feels great because I'm kind of almost starting again but I'm using all that kind of power that was no system and that theme yes so there were two things I've done um you know 10 years ago when Archie, Archie my son was was a, a toddler I, I went to art school finally <laughs> and did a part-time course and for me it was just great I could you know I had an excuse to give give a toddler to someone else for a day and I did it over six years so a, a, an adult um course part-time course um adult education and and um I, I decided not to tell them that I was a photographer so I tried sort of making things and stuff like that and I was really rubbish at it <laughs> and um I kind of realized that that wasn't going to work so I thought what are the threads you know like you said you know um I've got the photography but and I've got the traveling um and then I I had also started to I started a, a little charity called the Future Youth Project yes I saw so that what I decided to do was you know use when I was still living on the road I wanted to you know give something back as well and so I I thought what can I do and I thought well I'm good at driving and I've got a big truck so I started doing these aid convoys where I'd take things up. And one of the first places we went to was Chernobyl, about 15 years after the disaster. And we went up there and we delivered a load of aid to kind of um, children's homes and things up there. So I developed this idea at art school and I studied an artist called Joseph Boyce. And um, he talked about sculpting, you know, society social sculpture rather than sculpting an object so I in in short I brought together kind of my photography my sort of traveling urge and my humanitarian kind of aspirations into something called the future youth project um and then since then I've taken lots of people in a big red bus volunteers overland to the Ukraine and I've photographed that um and I now look after 47 disabled men um in Ukraine who are my friends and I've been photographing them and most recently I've I've kind of I guess I have found the essence of, of what I'm doing even more so through an alter ego character that I do performance pieces with who's called Dr Joy <laughs> so it was always about um a kind of a like subversive kind of joy my life has been you know slightly like you were talking about underground scenes and alternative scenes and 
um, Dr. Joy actually stemmed from another character that was previous to her called Art Nurse, but I won't go into all that now. <laughs> but Art, Art Nurse recently got elevated um, to being a doctor, and she's Dr. Joy, and she has conversations about joy and how, you know, um, how it can be, you know, how important it is for us on a personal level to ask ourselves where the joy is in our lives, but also on a cultural level. Yeah, and it's a really serious kind of bone deep, serious joy. So these are serious conversations about over seriousness in our culture. Um, and she'll be at the exhibition at Sunderland as well, so she's present and having conversations with the public. So there are lots of things that I'm doing. They, they, um, yeah, that are coming out of the whole kind of no system and that scene. Wow, um, you've done yeah. you've done amazing things, haven't you? With um, <laughs> with with those kind of those early kind of like seeds to to develop it so um, so on and up. And it's interesting, you know, that that sort of the performance art world as well, because that was something that I've often been interested by. And and uh, yeah, from especially that kind of stuff that started happening in the '60s at various galleries and happenings in you know, London and San Francisco, and there was various people in East Anglia who were kind of performance artists, which was always kind of boggling because you never knew how they, you know, how they kind of kept it together as performance yeah. artists. You know, well, you know, like making money, I suppose, which they probably didn't. But, you yeah. know, it's kind of it is kind of fascinating. But, yes, being a sort of multifaceted artist is um, probably yeah. feeds back into all the other parts of your work. Yeah, I mean... Young artists hate it when I say this to them, but um, my my piece of advice is go and get a job and then make the art you really want to make separately from that, at least initially. Yes. Um, and I and I and I suppose those kind of early performance artists did that sort of thing, and and you know, um, yeah. I yes. hope you come along to the Sunderland show. Well, it sounds fantastic. Well, look, thank you ever so much. That's been amazing <laughs> and so much more than I expected there. Quite, um, oh, quite popular. Well, but look, forever, as you can tell. <laughs> yeah, no, it's amazing. Well, thank you. I, you know, like I said, I've slightly sort of, you've often, you know, sort of cropped up on the on the sort of like moments of going, oh, yes, yeah, that amazing book and that amazing, mm. you know, some amazing mm. photographs. And yeah, the image has yeah. been stunning. So that's been amazing. So I'll tell you when I put this out and give you a link. Yeah. So you can always put it on your Wait. website somewhere if you want to. I will definitely do that. That's yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you. Thank you ever so much and have a lovely Great evening. To meet you one day. Take I care. Like meet people in person. I All know. Right. It's always Here such a shocker, isn't it? Okay. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye bye. Bye.